I grew up in, in Horsforth, which is just a little bit north of Leeds. So a real Yorkshireman. Though my mother wasn't from Yorkshire, but my father was. And if ever I was in trouble, and I'm sure most of you think, oh, I can't imagine, Roger, you were ever in trouble as a little boy. But if ever I was in trouble, I was, I was dealt with and admonished. And my, my father very often would say to me, remember you're a Carswell. And when he took me to university for the very first down time, down to the railway station in Central Leeds to get the train to go down to university, his final words to me before he said goodbye, remember you're a Carswell. Interesting, isn't it? Now, who's bothered about the Carswells? Well, he was. And he felt that I had a, a name to, as it were, live up to. May the 28th, 1972, the Duke of Windsor, who of course was the uncrowned King Edward the, the, the Eighth, died in Paris. The night of his death, on television, there was a programme about him, and he recalled that as a little boy, as the Prince of Wales, his father, King George V, would very often say to him, my dear boy, you, re- you must remember who you are. Now, we've gathered together as evangelists. And I suppose what I'm really wanting to get across uh, this evening, my simple aim, is that we might remember who we are. We are children of the King. We are Christians, so we have the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are evangelists. So most of us here, I know not quite all, but most of us have been set aside to do gospel work, to be involved in proclamation of the gospel. We are naming the name of the Lord Jesus constantly. And we are his ambassadors, as we heard this morning. We're his, well, the only, as it were, view of God that many people will see. We belong to a God who is holy. Now, I don't know whether one can argue as to which is the most important attribute of God. The fact that he's one God in three persons, I think, is probably the foundational doctrine of all of Scripture. And it's crucial. And I believe, actually, we should perhaps preach more of the Trinity in our evangelistic preaching. That's a different subject. But certainly his holiness, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the passage that we've just had very well read to us, I, I'm not going to expound, so you're alright, don't panic. But nevertheless, here is the priest. Okay, we're not the equivalent of priests. Perhaps we'd be the equivalent if we wanted something of Old Testament prophets. But nevertheless, here were a group of people set aside for the service of God. There were certain things they were not going to have, but they were going to have their lives devoted to communion with God on behalf of the people. And they're to wear garments that, that speak and shine out and even spell out holiness, holiness to the Lord. Now, I think as Christians, but at the moment we're not talking to the Christian community at large, so let's say I think as evangelists, we may have been a little bit guilty of losing the sight of the holiness of God. It was the holiness of God that led to the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. It was the holiness of God that necessitated the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth and going to a cross and bearing in his own body our sin. It was the holiness of God that is the basis of our acceptance and acceptability with the Lord God. That we are forgiven, we are robed in his righteousness and we are given 
the, 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 the quality to be able to have fellowship with God. We are made righteous and therefore we can commune with the righteous, righteous Lord God. We have received imputed righteousness. But I think the next step and part of what it means to be righteous is that we are people who are to pursue righteousness. We received righteousness and therefore we're righteous in God's sight. But nevertheless, a a, a follow-on from that is that there will be a passionate desire to pursue righteousness. Not to earn our salvation, but as a consequence of having received our salvation. So the holiness of God and in evangelistic work, I really just want us to think, if, if, if holiness is the attribute of God that perhaps dominates some others at least, and if holiness is an attribute that is going to be basic in our communication of the gospel, how should that impact us as evangelists? And I think it does. I think it does, first of all, as messengers. We are to be holy men and women. Now, I say that knowing very well that I'm not the person I ought to be. I'm not the person I want to be. Sometimes I bemoaned and bewailed my own sinfulness and thought, Harold Jacaza, you're a Christian, and yet... But you're not just a Christian, you're set aside for the service of God, and you, and, and I've beaten myself. I'm, I'm sure we've all been in situations like that. It's interesting, this year I decided, at the beginning of the year, I'd work through um, Pilgrim's Progress again. It's a long time since I'd read it, and, uh, and it's been a real blessing to me. He has a, he has a marvellous little saying, there's, um, there's um, a Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. I think it may be the interpreter who's speaking to Christian. He talks about inward and outward cogitations. It's a great phrase. I've never used the word cogitations before, but that's the first time publicly I've ever said it. And, and he's really talking about the, the spiritual battle that he is enduring, both inwardly and outwardly. So here we are, we're Christians, we've been forgiven, we've received imputed righteousness, but nevertheless we struggle with sin. Galatians 5, verse 17, such a key verse, I think. So that the the spirit is warring against the flesh, so that the flesh doesn't do as it wants. And the flesh is warring against the spirit, so the spirit isn't having his way over us as we want. And these two are contrary to one another. It's a sort of one-verse summary of Romans chapter 7. But every Christian is aware of this. The inward battle and the fighting that we have and sometimes we know the bitter defeats when we fall into sinfulness. We have been baptised with the Holy Spirit, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit and yet we find ourselves drawn to carnality, drawn to things that are wrong. But the priest wore a garment that shone forth holiness. And so the challenge comes to us when people see the way we act and react, what are they seeing? Are they seeing somebody who is reflecting something of the glory and the holiness of the Lord Jesus? Or are they seeing what we really were like and very little has changed, even though we claim to have had a life-changing experience? I say again, that there are struggles, and I'm not saying if you feel defeated and beaten by some sin at the moment, you're not a Christian. But I'm doing, I am saying, and I'm saying it to myself as well as, as to all of us, <coughs> We, we, we are to pursue righteousness and holiness. We're to hunger and thirst after it. I love this book, and I, I don't know how many times I've read this. I've read it a few times. 
And I really would recommend Christian Leaders of the 18th Century by J.C. Rouse. It's been a tonic and uh, nourishment to my soul. If I was to quibble with um, J.C. Ryle on anything, it's his chapter on John Berich of Everton. We've already had him mentioned. Uh, John Berich, there's no doubt he was a total eccentric, but I love these eccentrics, these mavericks. And, and, and he was a hymn writer. Now, you can get his hymns still printed in Gadsby's hymn book. Ryle says that he was no good as a hymn writer. He sort of writes off what he has to say as being quaint and antiquated, etc. And he really says he shouldn't have done it. I'm going to read a bit of a Berich hymn. And I think, yeah, okay, this is quaint. This isn't exactly Wordsworth. But he's got exactly where we're at, or at least where I'm at. Well, at length I plainly see every man is vanity. In his best and brightest form, but a shadow or a worm. And then he goes on to describe himself. Very foolish, very base, notwithstanding Jesus' grace. Murmuring oft for gospel bread, growing wanton when full fed. Brisk and dull in half an hour, hot and cold and sweet and sour. Sometimes grave at Jesus' school, sometimes light and play the fool. What a motley wretch am I, full of inconsistency. I. Sure, the plague is in my heart, else I could not act this part. And then his final verse. If my heart is broken well, God will surely with me dwell. Yet amazed I would be how the Lord should dwell with me. I just think it's gorgeous and it's an expression of, of what we're like. Sometimes we don't understand ourselves, do we? But there is to be this desire to be like the Lord Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord reveals himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah's response and reaction, woe is me for I am undone. And then you remember he's purged and his iniquity is taken away. And then the question comes, whom shall I send? And his response, here am I, send me. He was aware of his sin. But he'd received forgiveness. He knew he wasn't the man he ought to be in the sight of a holy God. But nevertheless, who shall I send? Well, I've been forgiven. I've been purged. Send me. 1 Peter chapter 1. And he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is well written, be holy. For I am holy. I imagine most of you agree with what I've said. But I have to say now, having been a Christian for this year 50 years, and being involved in sort of evangelistic work for quite a few of those years, and worked very closely with some people, time and again I have been bitterly disappointed by people I worked with who seem to have walked out on the faith, not that intellectually something came along that suddenly destroyed everything, but morally something came along that destroyed them. I have a a letter, I don't know whether I'll ever publish it, but I heard some news about a guy who worked with me for a year, worked with Steve Pete and me for a year, the three of us were together, and then I heard that he'd left his wife and gone with another woman, And I couldn't sleep. I got up in the middle of the night. I was crying and I wrote him a letter. He he replied two years later as it happens. But um, I sent him this letter. And then 
and mused on it. My children knew this person, so I photocopied the letter and sent it to them. I said, I'd like you to read this letter. One of my children said, Dad, you've got to publish that. But if there was anything that was worthy of being published, it was the sense of disappointment that this guy I'd worked with, prayed with, shared the gospel with, done evangelism together, would walk out on everything that he knew for the sake of. Now, you can think of people you will know, and there's some very famous Christians who have, as it were, let the side down. Let me tell you a story of somebody you've probably never heard of. Mark may have done if he's here. He's not here, is he? Oh, no, he's there. Mark may have done. An American guy who's not particularly well-known, but he had a church of nine and a half thousand. That's slightly more than Inskip, isn't it? Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. Nine and a half thousand. He was one of the translators of the New King James Version. He dared to challenge racism in his church, and after a long, drawn-out battle, he won the day. But there were some people in the church furious that he'd won the day on that issue, and they delved into his past. And they found, it, it almost seems too trivial these days with what we've heard, but nevertheless, they found that somebody had heard an inappropriate conversation about sexual matters with a lady in his previous church. So this was brought into the open in the church where he was to try and undermine what he'd done and undermine him. And he went out to a car park and shot himself. His name's Truman Dollar, if you want to um, look up his, his, his life story. It's a tragedy because he was a mighty man. And yet something went wrong years before that came to light and ruined him. And especially we guys, we struggle on all these issues. I don't quite understand the, the workings of the mind of women, but let me at least talk to the guys. We are incredibly vulnerable and weak in these areas. We're so susceptible to temptation. But the holiness of the messenger, it has to be a passionate desire that we exhibit consistency and integrity in our lives and in our ministry, not only when we're out in the open, but when nobody else is watching. Character is what we are in the dark, said D.L. Moody. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2. Uh, Andy read from this passage earlier. He said, you've seen how devout we've been, how just, how blameless. Are we blameless people? And do we come before the Lord and ask him to, to search us? Mr. Orr was travelling in New Zealand and he heard a beautiful Maori tune and he penned the words to go with the tune, Search me, O God, my actions try. Can we just ask ourselves, is there sin that is inhibiting our effectiveness is there sin that could wreck our witness and ruin all that we've accomplished? Is there sin in our lives that could, as it were, leave our character crumbling? Holiness is to be that which characterises the priest of the Old Testament and surely the evangelist of the New Testament. But then secondly, 
I want us to think a little bit about not only the holiness of the messenger, but the holiness of our motives as messengers. Now this is important as well, because I think when most of us began as evangelists, we would have been characterised by tremendous passion and verve and a desire to work and serve and give our all, whether it was energy, whether it was time, whether it was money, whether it was our very beings. But I've noticed again by reflecting on my own life and seeing others as well, that with the passing of years, we can start to lose the purity of motive, even while doing evangelistic work. It can become just work. It can become just our job. It can become something we do because it's what we have done and we, ex- we know that others are expecting us to continue to do it. Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem and in his heart he weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And then the verse we had this morning, the love of Christ, whether it's love for Christ or it's us receiving love from Christ, the love of Christ constrains us. And I want us to ask ourselves, is that still true of us? We who have been involved in Christian work for some time, is there still that passion? Or are we on an easy ride? Are we just, I don't know, walking through the world and we've really got quite an easy number? I sometimes wonder about all the travelling. Now, you know, I, as you've heard, I've just been to New Zealand. There were reasons, etc. I've got family there. Uh, and it was with great reluctance because I hate flying, so I've got a good, good excuse for not travelling. But I look at all the miles we spend going to all sorts of exotic places and I think... I'm not so sure we're doing this for the right motives. It is, it's very enriching to go to some of these countries and minister here and be looked after there. and da-da. But, what is it that's motivating us? Now, if you're going abroad, you've got something booked, it, it may well be the right thing. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just asking us to examine our motives. What about financial gain? Is there a tendency within us to befriend the rich? Who may support us. Though my experience actually is that most of our support comes from people who can't really afford to support us. But that's a different matter. But you see somebody who's rich, who's influential, oh, just get alongside them. They may just support me. But is that what motivated us when we left our secular employment to go into full-time Christian work? It wasn't. So what has happened to us that somehow our motives have become skewed? To presume that we can be proclaimers of God's gospel with motives that are contrary to the Lord's character surely is a travesty. Surely our motives are to be in line with the Lord who loved the lost and came for us who were lost and gave himself that he might save us. What about personal success and the idea of having a good reputation? Now we don't want to mar our reputation but sometimes we can give our energy just to promote our own ministry rather than the gospel, which is what we're really all about. What about the whole business of numbers? The tendency to exaggerate how many people came along. The tendency to exaggerate how many people professed faith. I read a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, about a university that had just had a mission and they said in the evangelical press, in their own reports, that 36 people had been converted at this mission. 
I was at that Christian Union two or three weeks later and made inquiries. And the president of the CU said, we didn't have many conversions at all. We had one or two who said they'd become Christians, but we've not seen them since. So where did that one or two become, how did it become 36? What's happening there? But we all know that we want to, as it were, have our ministry vindicated by apparent success. But we can't justify a lack of integrity or dishonesty. We must never exaggerate. And, and to be honest, looking back at some of these Christians I've worked with, who had been Christians for years and I've ministered with them, but now I always think, I don't know that I could ever say anybody's been converted to the being you know, going on the road for 20, 30, 40 years. I've got my jacks about Jonathan Fletcher. And um, how many years has he been going? <laughs> Let, let's be careful. We're not trying to prove our ministry by fabricating results. Holiness in our motives. Ministry has been given, us to, given to us by God. And it has its limits. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 13 we will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us. There are limits. You know, I, 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 I would like to evangelise the world by yesterday, but I can't do it. Tomorrow would do, but I can't even do that. There are limits. Somebody else has a great opportunity, I think, oh, I wouldn't mind. But hang on a minute, Roger, you've got your limits, you've got to do everything. And to recognise this, that God has placed me where he has put me now, and this is my ministry. He may eventually broaden it. But nevertheless, in this limited area, I will do what I can for the glory of God now, and let's see what he uh, does through what I'm sowing, and what I'm watering, and what I'm praying will eventually become a harvest. And maybe the Lord allows us to go through some of the tough and small opportunities that most of us experience. Because, as somebody put it, to every 100 people that can handle failure, only one can handle success. And then thirdly, and this is, I feel this so strong, I'd really love to get it across to all of us. And probably, I don't know, you're all convinced anyway, but let me indulge myself by repeating what is a passionate desire of mine. Holiness in our message. I was very taken about a year ago, reading through Luke's Gospel again, and coming to chapter 24, and noticing, I think for the first time, I've never really noticed this before, that when in Luke's Gospel we have the Great Commission given to us, it's different from Matthew, where the Lord Jesus would go and, and you know, make disciples, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's different from Mark, go and preach to every creature. It's different from John, where the emphasis is on the low I'm with you, it's peace I leave with you. In Luke, the emphasis is on what the Gospel is. Go and tell your neighbours, well he says Jerusalem, but it's your neighbours, and all the nations, and he tells us what we're to tell our neighbours and the nations. And there are four things. First, tell them about my sufferings. Second, tell them about my resurrection. Thirdly, tell them about repentance. And fourthly, tell them about forgiveness of sins. It's all in one verse, I think it's verse 44, 46, 45 it is, sorry. 
four basic ingredients into gospel proclamation. And if we're omitting any of them, we're not really being faithful to the gospel. Now I think this is crucial because I don't know how many scores of messages I've heard which are supposed to be evangelistic, but don't have these contents, don't have these ingredients. Tell them about my sufferings. It's the proclamation of the cross. And not the gory physical details that Jesus went through all this on the cross for us. No, he bore in his own body our sin. Our sin was laid on him. Jonathan explained so powerfully this morning. And then so simply with those chairs, that illustration he used. But it's, it's beating away, making a path to the cross. So I would always feel I have to, in every message, where I'm explaining the gospel to non-Christians, proclaim the hidden work of Jesus. God took our sin and laid it on Christ and he paid the penalty it would take us all eternity to pay. Go and tell them about my sufferings. Go and tell them about the resurrection. That Jesus not only died, but three days later, bodily, physically, conquered death and the grave and rose. We proclaim a risen Jesus. So which is more important, the, the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus? Well, I think the answer to that is from the marriage service. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. They're two sides of the, the one coin. They're both crucial. Interestingly, if you go through the sermons that the Apostle Paul preached and Peter in the book of Acts, every single sermon, and some of them are obviously just precy, the very you know couple of verses, so it's not, not the full sermon, but we've got the outline if you want. Every single sermon through the book of Acts, which is evangelistic, has the resurrection and repentance. Now, clearly, you can't have a resurrection unless there's first been death. So the death and the resurrection, and then repentance. And that's the third thing the Lord Jesus tells us to, to go and proclaim. And yet I have found, time and again, when I've spoken about repentance in churches, people have come up to me and said, you know, I've not heard anything on repentance for years. And you think, well, what's going on? Because, well... John the Baptist started his ministry by saying to the crowd, repent. Jesus began his ministry by saying, repent. The, the disciples, when they're sent out in Mark's gospel to go and preach the kingdom, they, 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 they preach the kingdom, yes, but they preach it by saying, repent. Peter, great first Christian sermon at Pentecost, preaches, repent. Paul, as we've just heard, preaches repentance. It is crucial. It is a turning from sin and our own way to the Lord Jesus to receive forgiveness. And what a wonderful truth that we have to share that, hey, our sins, though they're as scarlet, they can be made as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, are we being faithful? Are we being holy in the message that we are proclaiming? You see, we are very earnest. We, we desperately want people to be converted. We want them to be saved. And we are tempted, using our own logic, our own human wisdom, to water down the message, to sort of just bring them in. And when we brought them in, we'll tell them a bit more. No, 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 that is not God's way. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking craftily, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2 again, but as we've been approved by God, 
To be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. There was a carol service at Leeds University a few years ago, and the speaker, a well-known sort of carol service speaker, and a friend of mine, Andy Stavell, was going along. So I said, oh, I'd love to hear what you think that speaker, I've never heard him. And uh, later on, I met up with Andy. I said, what do you think? And he came up with a sentence. Eventually, I, I wrote an article about it using this sentence as a title. This is what he replied. What did you think of the speaker? He said, Roger, great communicator. No gospel. Great communicator. Well, what's the point? Preaching ourselves, displaying our abilities. But there are these core foundational fundamental issues that we must get across to an unconverted world. We are in, we're in a ministry of rescuing really and um, if we forsake the gospel we really are forsaking the God of the gospel and making ourselves unable to rescue even if others think we're doing a great job. Do you remember Paul writing to the Galatians? It's one of the few occasions Maybe the only occasion, I don't know, where he immediately repeats himself. Um, If we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, then that which which we preach, sorry, let him be a curse. I say again, if they or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel unto you than that which you have heard from me, let him be a curse. He just repeats it. This This is a treasure. We're to protect it. We're to earnestly guard it. So a girl receives a lovely engagement ring. But she doesn't just leave it hanging around. She she earnestly guards it. It's valuable. She wants to protect it. We have this wonderful message. Let's dare to believe that winsome faithfulness to these precious truths is what God uses. Holiness of the message. Or to quote as Jonathan's done once or twice, John Stott said... The devil disturbs the church by error as much as by evil. And that is true. Holiness of the messenger, yes, but holiness of the message too. Then one other thing. Holiness in our methods. In our desperation to get people in and under the sound of the gospel... I wonder if we have been guilty of unworthy behaviour. I've experienced this um, in the last year or two in a way that I found a little bit hurtful. And I must say, uh, maybe I've been too sensitive over these things. I have a style of missions that I more or less insist on. Well, I do insist on, if you want to know the style, I'll send you a paper with it all on and how we do it. But basically, I interview somebody maybe for 40, even 45 minutes, and then I speak. Now, those are the two basic ingredients. We might have somebody singing before and maybe in the middle. We might have some refreshments, etc. But we interview somebody and then I speak. And some of the people I interview are fascinating people. Um, a couple of guys who were terrorists, guilty of murder, both of them, different occasions, converted in the Mays prison. Dramatically converted, both of them now pastors. Well, they're very, very powerful stories. Uh, an Olympic rower. Dave Donigani here, who's 
to severely handicapped children. They interviewed about this whole issue of why God allows these things, etc. And there are a whole lot. I've got about 70 names of people that I interviewed. But on four occasions, the church has, as it were, imposed on my programme. Because I always say, look, these are the people I like to interview, etc. But they've chosen a comedian. I now write in my notes, if you want them, you'll see it. I say, look, I'm not prepared to work with comedians. The last one, I don't even remember his name. I I, I could find out very quickly. But um, uh, I'd already got it in my notes. I don't want to work with a comedian. uh, Because it just seems incongruous to go from these, you know, comical guys onto the seriousness of the gospel. I don't mind a bit of humour, a bit of fun, but it just doesn't seem to sit comfortably and uh, this guy, they advertised on the programme, never told me, but they advertised on the programme that he writes for two particular television programmes. Now, I've seen one, and it is just smutty. But he's a Christian, and, oh, he's a scriptwriter for this particular programme. I thought, well, how does that work? And anyway, I phoned up and said, look, you've seen what I said, I, didn't, I don't want to interview comedians and they said we knew but that's why we did it without asking you I said I'm really sorry but I'm not I'm not prepared to interview him because I don't feel it sits with the gospel and they said okay well we'll do it there was a big crowd perhaps 600 people there and they interviewed this guy who justified why he could write smut for the BBC and etc and I preached the gospel at the end I, I didn't identify myself at all with this particular Comedian, but the man who organised the programme, who eventually interviewed the guy, came straight up to me and said, Roger, you, you were right. We should never have had him. Now, why? They're, they're godly people, these, the, the organisers, and I enjoyed the mission, and we saw some fruit in the week. But why? It's so desperate to get in the crowds, have this man, whom I've never heard of, but presumably others had, and call him a comedian. They'll come in. Is this God's way of doing things? How can we be proclaiming a holy God who has gone to such lengths to provide forgiveness and reconciliation and use somebody who is delighting, reveling in his smut? It doesn't make sense to me. I I, I can think of another speaker. Every time I've heard him in the last seven years, he he always has in his sermons what I call lavatorial humour. He said, well, just think that, that, that again, it was just unclean. Why are you doing that as a Christian? Okay, you get a big laugh from all these people and maybe for a moment they're on your side, but no, we're proclaiming a holy God. We want to appear cool and relevant and understanding of how people are thinking, but we are Christians. We are people who are passionate about the Lord's glory and that will impact What music we have, what programs we have, who we interview, what we do. It will impact the way we evangelise. Even on beach missions, I um, I remember years ago, uh, I was really thrilled 
because I was leading a mission in Clandudno, in North Wales, and we used to play in the morning games with the kids and then try and talk to some of the adults who were around about. And we, we ended with a game of what we called, I don't know whether they still do, maybe it's not politically correct now, but we used to call it Chinese laundry, you know, and you'd send, you'd have these teams, right, the first one to go and get a, I don't know, a tie. And let's go to the beach and get a tie, right, this team's got a point. First one to get a, and we went through like this. Now, it was somebody else leading it, but I, I at the time thought, oh, that was clever. And then I reflected. He said, the first one to get the biggest pile of shoes they can in the next 60 seconds, go! And he counted. And at the end of the 60 seconds, one team had won, etc. And then before returning the shoes, this guy sort of spoke to the crowd about the gospel. I thought, oh, that was really clever. And then I thought, no, it wasn't. That was wrong. It was deceitful. It was underhand. It wasn't the best. We talked about it later on. And obviously we're always learning and we will always be making mistakes. But it's this idea of integrity and honesty and and just doing things in a way that we're saying, Lord, if we don't get as big a crowd as we would have liked, but nevertheless we're being true to you and your character and your calling, then that's the way that we'd go. The first group of commandments are about loving the Lord our God. And that is the priority. Okay, the second, to love our neighbour. But nevertheless, to love the Lord our God. It's as if holiness triumphs over evangelistic opportunity. If you understand what I'm saying. 2 Corinthians 6, we give no offence in anything that our ministry be not blamed. So I'd like to conclude really by... Just giving us some things to sort of decide in our mind. I think the first thing is that that we side with God that his message, the motivation for proclaiming the message, and the methods, and indeed, as much as possible, the messenger is right and holy. That we say, yes, Lord, the priority for me is I live a pure, clean life, that I do things in a way that is all for your honour and glory, that I do things that are honouring and glorifying to the gospel. That we decide, yes, that is a priority, and I'll look at everything I'm doing in the light of that. Secondly, that we acknowledge that we are responsible for the depth of our life, but God is responsible for the breadth of our ministry. In other words... We acknowledge that we are called to a certain way of living and speaking. And whether we become, quote unquote, successful is God's responsibility, not ours. We are not out to make a name for ourselves. We are out to make a great name for the Lord. And then thirdly, that as we live and proclaim, we do so with this deep sense of dependence upon God. When we think we can do it without the Lord, something is going wrong. And an indication of that is when we cease to be prayerful. Every message I ever preach beforehand, I always pray, Lord, without you, I know I can do nothing. And unless the Lord is taking what I'm saying and using it, Whatever anybody says about the quality of the message or otherwise matters not. 
The important thing is, is God taking hold of what I'm saying, whether it's one-to-one or one-to-a-crowd, and using it to get to the hearts of men and women to, as it were, pierce them and then point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be people who are prayerful in our daily devotions. And we will be people who are gathering with others to pray because we will recognise without God's blessing, without God's Holy Spirit coming and using, this is all going to be useless. We're just beating the air with our words. And then fourthly, day by day, and maybe as life's ministry eventually draws to a close for us, we are very careful to give all the glory to God. We've all preached in situations where nobody has come and said anything like, that was a good word, or thanks very much, and you sort of think, oh, I wonder what I said or did. But we've also been in situations where people have come up to us and said, that was a good word, that was blessed, that was really, etc. And what do you do with that? I learned from Corrie Ten Boone, and I, I use this, um, whenever it happens to me. She said, you know this lady who we heard, was it yesterday, hid Jews in Harlem in Holland and then was betrayed and the whole family was taken into Ravensbrück. She, through a sort of, what was regarded as a, 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 a mistake, but it clearly wasn't a mistake, was released and spent the next 40 odd years going around the world telling people about her experiences and that quotation, no matter how deep the pit, God is deeper still. And people would come up to her and really blessed by her. And they oh, thank you, that was wonderful. The Lord really spoke to me, etc. And she said, I learned to treat all those compliments as if somebody was giving me a rose. And at the end of every day, I presented back to the Lord a bouquet of roses. A bouquet of roses. Lord, thank you for the abilities that you've given me. But you gave them. And thank you for the blessing that there may have been, but it was all of you. I just give you it all back. I give you back the glory. So it's learning to make much of him and little of ourselves. Saying that he must increase, we must decrease. It is all about God. And if we really are passionate about that, then we'll say, oh Lord, here I am, take me, use me, fill me. Give me strength to keep on making much of the Lord Jesus. It's all about him. And we're going to think more about that, God willing, tomorrow. But I, I, I really want us just to examine our hearts. And I speak to myself again. And just say, search me, O God. Has holiness gone from our evangelism? If it has, it's gone from our thinking, our lives. And we need to get sorted out and say, now Lord, I'm doing this for your glory. And doing it in your way. Amen. Paul. Well, Roger, will you pray for us? I will pray, yes. Thank you. Father, we know all too well we're not the men or women that we ought to be. And in sharing some of these things, Lord, I, I know I am a total hypocrite. Except I aspire for these things. I aspire, I long to be like the Lord Jesus. I long to hear, have his passion for souls. I long to 
have the fellowship of his sufferings to weep over the things that he wept over as well as to be able to rejoice over the things that he rejoices over and long to be like him and long to have such confidence in his taking hold of his word and believing that this can be used to bring life where there was death and I long to be somebody who by my prayerfulness and sense of dependence shows dependence upon you And Lord, I, like all of us here, would love to have bigger and bigger opportunities, but only for your glory. But we want to say we're content to be where you've put us. And if need be, to remain here. But if not, Lord, if the ministry is expanded, may our depth of life grow deeper. And may we be very, very careful that we are giving you all the glory. So wash us from sin and fill us anew with your Holy Spirit to go and make much of the Lord Jesus, for we ask in his name. Amen. Amen.